There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie! Yeah, we're gonna be a movie! Starring everybody and me! There'll be heroes bold, there'll be comedy, and a lot of fuss that ends for us real happily. And we are going to start right here. Hello. Welcome to a Rattledgen Broadcasting Network triple feature. Tonight on the marquee is King Richard from HBO Max, starring Will Smith. Second on the marquee is The Guilty, currently on Netflix, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And thirdly is Night Teeth, starring Jesse Star from the Disney Channel and star of Insatiable, covered here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, Debbie Ryan, which is the only reason yeah. I wanted to watch this. Yeah, that was that was on you. Uh, yep. Uh, I always, I mean, look, I, did, I, look, I don't hate you good this way. time. There's always two good ones and one crap one. And by the way, that is the Jiminy Cricket uh, in my life. The, the conscience on my shoulder. The voice in the back of my head. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jason Teasley. How do you do, sir? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I don't hate you for this this triple <laughs> feature. There, There's no I hate. I, I hate Mark. I can't yeah, there wait was less, to... There was less pestering about this one. Uh, this one was... I, I'm actually... Um, really pleased with all three of these movies, and mm -hmm. we we run a gambit here of of the genre. Um, we we don't get stuck in like a a uh, we don't pigeonhole like a what what's the word a well, niche of yeah Some, similar movies. I was gonna say sometimes with these triple features, I like to do a theme. You know, Alexis and I did a theme of Halloween kids movies. Um, Robert and I just did the MMA one. We did a, we did a Western one, but sometimes like with you or with Ronnie, it's just a grab bag of whatever happens to be out of the time. So, um, you actually getting into it, you pitched King Richard and I said, okay, well, I don't want to do that as a damn you Hollywood because it's day and date on HBO max and there'll be no money to talk about. So like, let's wrap. And I wanted to talk about night teeth at some point. We just couldn't get it done close to Halloween because my schedule was too packed at the time. Not that it isn't now. Uh, so I was like, okay, I've heard really good things about The Guilty. You wanted to talk King Richard, and given that it's probably going to be an Oscar contender to some degree or another, I was like, we probably should talk about it. And I just want to throw Night Teeth onto a podcast somewhere. So I was like, let's, let's, do, let's do all of these together. So this is a grab bag episode of Triple Feature. Uh, but going back to you, now you are in general a sports movie enthusiast, so it's not so much that you're like a big fan of Venus and Serena or tennis. You're just like sports movie, new, let's go. Yeah, and I love biopics, uh, mm -hmm. especially that, you know, have some grounding in reality, uh, which, you know, I've pitched you a couple of movies that are upcoming that we're going to get on the schedule mm -hmm. uh, in February. Um, one's a biopic, the other's kind of, a hot topic uh, about college athletics. So I'm I'm really one of those people that if you if you can sell me on a sports movie and if it's a mm -hmm. biopic, I'm there. Like you know, I've watched Ali. I've watched 
Um, you know, King Richard, I watched, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, for the love of the game, uh, the rookie, um, everything that runs the game. I mean, some Mm -hmm. of my favorite movies of all time are sports movies. Like remember the Titans, Mm -hmm. uh, excellent movie, uh, varsity blues, not a biopic, but it from everybody that I've talked to that and, uh, Friday night lights Mm -hmm. really close depiction of how high school football is depicted in the state of Texas and and fucking insane. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, sports movies, uh, biopics of sports figures, sign me up. I'll, I'll review all day. Yeah. This, uh, I have to admit King Richard was probably not high on my list of things to talk about, but two things happened. Well, three things. One, you wanted to talk about it. So immediately I was interested because I, I basically, if anyone comes to me and be like, I really want to talk about this, suddenly I get interested because, oh my God, somebody's somebody else is pitching something around here besides me. So, um, and I'm always open to try, try something new in terms of film and entertainment and whatnot. But the second thing was, um, and, and I really have to put the blame, as it were, on Alexis here, is she was saying at the beginning of the year, like, we really should touch on some of these Oscar uh, nominated movies, you know, that. That brings in a whole other because for the longest time the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network just focused on summer blockbusters and you know and big franchise IP movies. And we didn't really get into any of the art house or the Oscar picks or whatever. And she's not wrong. There is a there is a fan base out there for those kinds of movies. And I, I think I shied away from talking about it because it generally made well. What would there be to talk about? But there is stuff to talk about as I've kind of committed myself to a year of doing these. So when you were like, let's talk about King Richard, and I started to look at it, I was like, okay, I don't particularly care about the subject matter. I don't watch tennis, and I I barely know who Venus and Serena are. I have heard about them because you can't not – it's like any major sports figure you're going to hear about unless you're yeah. really just not paying any attention to the to the popular culture at all. And they, they transcended tennis, and I know that because I don't pay attention to tennis. But like John McEnroe and – Andre Agassi, I know those names because they transcended tennis. They were they were bona fide celebrities beyond the game that made them stars. So I knew who Venus and Serena were. And generally speaking, I think Will Smith is an underrated actor. I think for the most part, he gets unfairly criticized because nobody asks Will Smith of anything. They just say, be charming. And he goes and he memorizes his lines and he's charming as, you know, as all get out. And that's enough for most directors. When he's able to actually create a character as he does with King Richard, he is phenomenal to watch. And I would say the same thing about a few others, like, you know, who generally don't get the credit they deserve for dramas, like Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler. When you give them a character to play and they actually have to step outside themselves, like another example of this would be Denzel Washington in Malcolm X. These are all examples of somebody who steps out of themselves. They're not just playing a heightened version of themselves. They are formulating a character down to the mannerisms, the speech patterns, everything. And that by itself was a good reason enough for me to watch King Richard. And and like you, I like a nice, well-told underdog story. I like, you know, I like to see people struggle and you know pull themselves up by their bootstraps and win in the end it's it's a heartwarming story even if a lot of it is nonsense so um anything I'm else just, before we jump into yeah, king richard yeah i want to touch on something you brought up i mean okay. some of the people that you named mm-hmm. are get pigeonholed 
into sure. comedic roles. Yep. So when they break out into a serious role, like, you know, most notably for me is it's a great movie if you've never seen it. Uh, it's one of my favorite Adam Sandler movies. It's called Rain Over Me. Okay. Uh, with him and Don Cheadle. Ooh, that's not where I thought you were going. I thought you were going with Uncut Gems. Uh, no. Or, no. or if you said Punch Drunk Love, I would have just turned the podcast off. No, um, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it because mm -hmm. it's a really, it's a really heartbreaking movie. It's one of okay. those movies. It would literally have you bawling, crying. This is Rain over men, R A, like like rain from the sky. R E R E I G N, like rain like over Roman me. rains. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. And. It's a really thing, especially you being from, uh, you know, having ties in the New York area. It's mm -hmm. something that may hit close to home to you, okay. uh, because it's it's a it's a basically odd couple story. Mm -hmm. uh, Adam Sandler plays a very serious role, but with comedic undertones. He he's not do, you know, he's not doing like you know something his, like a Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man kind of a thing. Yes, uh, okay. real similar to that. I mean, okay. not on that level. No, I don't. It is. I don't say he's not but, playing. I mean, it's just got those tones. Just like um, it, it, the movie has funny elements to it, but he's playing a serious role. And like, like Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. You know, mm -hmm. typically a lot of people know him. Ace Ventura. You know, if you tell people to name Jim Carrey movies, some of the uh, some of the liar, ones liar. pop pop off is his comedic mm -hmm. performance. You're not going to hear yeah. uh, Eternal. Uh, Sunshine, you're not going to hear any of those. Any right. of his... Meanwhile, his best movie he's ever done is The Truman Show. Yes, I, I think that's a, a phenomenal movie, which is serious, but it has those undertones too, right. those comedic undertones. Um, and, you know, that those are the actors that people don't think like. Like Will Smith. When you think mm -hmm. Will Smith, immediately you either think, you, you immediately go to his Fresh Prince of Bel-Air mm -hmm. um, for the most part. Or hitch or anything uh you don't think of movies like this like seven pounds like ollie you don't get those right you know you dig for those uh right. they're not immediately leaping out so seeing him in this role mm -hmm. and you know i kind of i kind of seen you know some of this stuff growing up because you know avid sports fan who mm -hmm. lived on espn when you know he wasn't out playing sports you know espn was on Quite often, mm -hmm. so seeing seeing and the rise of the Williams sisters, and seeing this, and you know recalling back to the tidbits I remember, and seeing this was really astounding because uh, I don't think that a lot of people realize what they came from mm -hmm. to where they got. Uh, I mean, right. and how much they kind of broke through a glass ceiling, I guess you could say, in a sport that is not African-American friendly. I mean, no. just an easy way to put it. Uh, and how they championed breaking through that glass ceiling as a person of color and being damn good at it. And yeah. not good. They're great. They're, they're iconic. They're in mm. that elite realm of iconic figures for the sport um i mean like right now you're seeing commercials with serena's wonder woman i mm -hmm. mean you know for direct tv mm -hmm. plug plug um anyway uh but yeah i mean they transcend everything and this is something that a lot of you know going back bringing it back comedic actors when they do a really good comedy 
Mm-hmm. That's all people expect of him. So it, funny to look at like Will Smith's career, and and I don't want to go too off on a tangent. I want to get into the review, but I, it does need to be said: the man started out as a sanitized hip hop artist, and I don't even yep. know if that's where he really started. I just know that all us white boys know him from the you know from um, who was it? Parents just don't understand. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, you know, right. you know what was it? Welcome to my nightmare, or whatever the one he did about about Freddie. Nightmare on my street. Nightmare on my street. Yeah, parents just don't understand. Um, and then from that, he jumps into the sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which had serious moments. And I, when I wasn't yeah. a real big fan of the show, but I mean, it's a lot of him playing off serious actors and you know, and being goofy and charming. And he goes from that to like. Independence Day, you know, and um, yeah, and you know he had some of those. Uh, you know, he had Bad Boys mm-hmm. in there. Um, then he, you know, he. I had know there's some a movie where I think he kids. plays. I, I feel like it's either he plays a gay, um, a gay cop or something like that, or I, I can't remember. But there, but like in early on in his career, and I have to look up his, his IMDb. But early on in his career, he played something that was like way off the beaten path of stuff that he had been getting. My point being. That like you you follow the trajectory of Will Smith's career, and it's like okay, we have this charming, this this good looking, charming tall fellow who can obviously do comedy. That's what we're going to use him for. Um, he gets these action roles, but these action roles are not deep, you know, or anything like that. They, they they don't ask a lot of him. It's be you know be charming, but also be funny and you know and punch an alien in the face and say welcome to Earth. You know that that sort of thing. Yeah. But if but there would be these little dots here and there, you know, or like bad boys, like you mentioned before, where like Larry, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, there'd be these little dots in his career where where some people didn't even know that he did them. They were such small small pictures, but he would take on these really dramatic roles and knock them out of the park. Um, I know not everyone loves his portrayal of Ali, and there are some that think it's a crap movie. But I I I, I will give the man somebody said that um, kind of transitioning into King Richard, his portrayal of Richard Williams feels like a performance and they compared it to Ali, which felt more like an impression. I don't want to debate the merits of that argument. I'm just saying it's out there. Um, and so if nothing else, if, if that is true, objectively speaking, you can't say Will Smith hasn't gotten better because he knocks it out of the park with King Richard. So let's talk about what this movie actually is since we've been sort of dancing in and out of it. Uh, Richard, William, Richard Williams is raising his two daughters, Vetus and Serena, plus his three stepdaughters in Compton, California, home of NWA. Venus competes <laughs> in the ITF junior circuit before going pro in 1994 at the age of 14. Richard expresses hesitation about her going pro to the chagrin of her mother. Richard soon char- uh, changes his mind and signs up both of his daughters with coach Rich, uh, Rick Macy, played by the fantastic and, and another one who's probably going to get an Oscar for this or at least a nomination, John Bernthal. Otherwise, oh, yes. He is so good. Um, the family moved to Florida once the two daughters become professional players. Venus competes against I, somebody, Vicario. Yeah. From Spain uh, in 1994. Nine months later, she signs a contract with Reebok. Boy, is there a lot more in this movie than what's in that, what's in that premise on Wikipedia, but let's just get into it. So I'll, I'll let you go first, Jason. Um, I don't, I don't want to overtalk you. Tell me in terms of craft, you know, performances, storytelling, what did you think of this movie? I was blown away. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no um, 
no ifs, ands, buts about it. I, I was pleasantly shocked. I was really entrenched in this movie more than what I thought I would be. Typically mm-hmm. watching a movie, uh, I'm kind of, you know, dicking around on my phone, kind of, right. you know, checking stuff. I was actually in, invested in this movie uh, because you see this and the two girls that play Venus and Serena mm-hmm. knock it out of the park. I mean, they embodied a love of the game, I guess you could say, as well as to be uh, portraying two high-profile athletes who are, you know, the executive producer that are on, (laughs) you know, that are overseeing this thing and having that added pressure, especially working opposite Will Smith, Mm -hmm. uh, who is a, you know, big-name actor in himself. Uh, But to have the people you're portraying overseeing everything and pull off this such great performance as they did is astounding, uh, especially Mm -hmm. for young actors. Um, This was, it was very well put together. I think the only thing that I have to (laughs) complain about this movie is I would have liked to seen a little bit more of the trajectory afterwards Mm -hmm. um, and them not focus so much on them at the, the tennis clinic uh, cut about a few minutes out, probably about 10 minutes out of there. And just, you know, even if it was just like a highlight montage of Mm. the career and what's really forgotten in this is you pretty much follow Venus Mm -hmm. through this Serena is the better athlete is the better iconic name. Venus is known for her hair uh, when she came out with the braids, with the beads in it. And that's what she's done for. She, uh, her iconic look. Serena was the better tennis player. And I don't mm-hmm. think that they gave her the credit that they did because it, it just shows them grooming Venus. You don't mm-hmm. see the work that Serena put in. You see the little bit what she does with her mom at little montage there. But it's kind of like an afterthought. And I, I think that was one of the down parts for me mm-hmm. is because it's like they put so much focus on his relationship with Venus. Uh, and they kind of left Serena as an afterthought. Now, for the craft of this, um, I think it was very well shot. I mean, you did have like a lot of edits uh, mm-hmm. that you could notice. Uh, I think, you know, the, the tennis sequences were were believable mm-hmm. i mean it was it didn't look like it was so unbelievable that you know if they was making you know they had like stand-ins or anything um john bernthal was he was one of the highlights of the movie he i, I think so he good was, yeah i think he was the hidden gem of this as well yeah. as the as well as the mom whoever played the lady that played the mom was like uh especially with the Okay, so her um, name is Anjanu Ellis. And the fight she, they have in the kitchen. Yeah, I really like, want to talk about that, but go ahead. Um, by the way, she is um, just a couple of things that she's been in since you brought her up. She's been in, she's Marianne Fisher and Ray. Um, she's been in like tons of stuff here, but just a couple of other things besides Ray. She's in um, The Resident, <clears throat> The Taking of Pel- Pelham 1, 2, 3 in 2009. Uh, the Birth of a Nation in 2016, If Beale Street Could Talk 2018, 
um, some more recent stuff she's been in was Pimp, Miss Virginia. She's been also in a ton of television, like Numbers, Justice, True Blood, The Good Wife, um, Sleepy Hollow, Quantico, uh, Lovecraft Country, which we reviewed on here. That was Alexis and Robert. And she's gotten some primetime Emmy nominations for When They See Us. Um, I think I saw When They See Us, as a matter of fact. I, I believe I watched that. Yeah, I did. Um, Lovecraft Country and Ray. So, yeah, she's a she is obviously a very talented actress. Yeah, and you know we'll touch on that when when we cross it. But the mm -hmm. the the kitchen scene is very very pivotal and emotional, mm -hmm. and like she pulls off this performance in just that one scene that kind of sticks with you. Um, the portrayal of Richard, um, the the lunacy that he was and what he had in his head. Mm -hmm. I think Will Smith really pulled it off because if you go back and watch some of the interviews, um, you really questioned if he was saying if he needed to be in these girls' lives and handling okay. their careers because he just like you know when he's Can saying I that he he mapped their lives out. This is mm -hmm. true. He stated it multiple times. And Can, let me jump in here for a second because, um. You're not the first person to have brought that up. In the defense of at least the portrayal of this man, I don't know how, how true to life this is, but he talks about having grown up in Shreveport, Louisiana, and suffering um, violent racism of white people. He has watched both firsthand what's going on in the tennis world, but I think he's also, I mean, it's the 90s. We've seen story after story of people and music and arts and sports rise to prominence, become celebrities and crash and burn because people weren't watching out for them. Um, they, they succumb to pressure, that sort of thing. I, in his defense, and this is why I don't see him as truly like crazy or villainous, which is the intent of the movie. Let's, let's face that is that I think he was insightful um, I think he knew that if he did not watch the girls carefully and if he let them blossom too soon, if he get, you know, if he chased if he chased the money too soon and too much, that he was putting his daughters at risk. And what I saw, as is the movie's intent, which is a whole other subject, is that he loved these girls. He saw a world that is an uphill struggle for black people on a regular basis let alone you know, when you're trying to break through uh, some of the white people gatekeeping that goes on in various industries, namely tennis in this case, that it, he needed to prepare them for that. Like the first act of this takes place in Compton and you know, it's Compton in the 90s. Um, and, I, and, and I think he's sort of you know, projecting ahead, looking ahead and seeing nothing good is going to happen if I don't push them really hard, you know, harder. It, it, it's like what women, women say about, you know, com as compared to men, you have to do twice the amount of work that men do for less pay and less recognition to get anywhere in life. Now imagine if you're both, if you're black and a woman, how hard that's got to be. And I think his ability to recognize that and go, I'm going to solve for it and I'm going to push through it and I'm going to push them through it makes him to me a extremely sympathetic character 
Yeah, and I don't. It, it's in the moment, and that's what I mm -hmm. think this movie wanted to take. In the moment, he was labeled crazy. He was labeled. He did not have the girl's best interest and everything. Mm -hmm. But this is where the movie shows you peeks behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I'm going to touch on this at the end. One of the major things is just like you said, he didn't want the girls getting burnt out too soon. But he states that he said, I want them to be kids. That's why he mm -hmm. takes them to Disney World. He blows off practice to go to Disney World. Yep. But he wants them to be kids. He wants them to be there because, and, and it goes through this, and this is something that he talked about in one of his interviews that I came across, um, is the whole Jennifer Capriotti thing. Jennifer Capriotti, child prodigy tennis star, rose to dominance, got strung out on drugs. Yep. career down the drain and she was like 17 18 years old uh she got that so sad and he was kind of in a way he was was looking out for the girl's best interest in Good a question. way but he was doing it in a way that people labeled him crazy because hang on hang on let me jump in here did you see i Tanya? no i have not okay like super quick first of all go see i go watch i Tanya. Okay. find it on hulu or whatever it's amazing but one of the things that Itanya touches on is when you, yes, there's a certain level of commitment that goes into being a child athlete and then becoming a, you know, an adult professional that I think we all recognize, you know, you're not going to get there by half-assing it unless you are some like wickedly ridiculous talent, like mm. once in a hundred year lifetime talent. Uh, most people have to commit their lives to it like it's a religion. But I think there's also a tacit recognition that, to the exclusion of all else, you will make someone crazy doing that. There has to be some degree of balance. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I think he had the best interest mm -hmm. at heart. How totally. he went by it mm -hmm. was what labeled him as, you know, people people questioned that? his motives. If, if you're you're in the not not to, not to be this guy, but you're a black man dealing with the white media. <laughs> who, who like to spin narratives and that you know so so long as there's been journalism there's been narratives there's been framing at work and i and i feel like I, I would have to listen to the interviews to sort of judge for myself just how crazy he sounds but i think if you're again you know he's got to be what in his 40s when, when this is all taking place in yeah the he's 90s? like he, he's late 30s all right so 30 to 40s. 40 years on earth Land and it lands you in the '90s. He's seen some stuff, and I feel like <laughs> it's kind of like I was telling my son today. You cannot just say whatever comes to your mind in polite society. You have to have a filter, and I feel like he was just sort of done with the filter and saying things that are absolutely true and we all know to be a fact, but we don't talk about it in polite society because it's not nice and we don't want to we don't want to recognize on, on on that level how bad systemic racism can be and all of this other stuff that he's pointing at. Yeah. Um, you know, having a filter yeah, is debatable. Ask me and Pat. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, but you know, but like I said, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm not discrediting what mm -hmm. he's seen and yeah. why his intentions were, how he went about him is what sure. this movie, I think what this movie wanted to highlight and wanted to emphasize on now, the one thing that I had that kind of, you know, was kind of ham-handed was the meeting at the country club where, you know, he goes off on his rant about, you know, the whole it's races. It's amazing. 
why do you keep saying that? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, again, the impression is it's amazing that a black dad stayed with his family and raised champions because that never happens. Well, we won't we won't go into something my wife pointed out, but anyway, <laughs> about the dad being around. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, but it, it's one thing that you know he did have the be- girl's best interest because in the moment and this in the movie kind of it doesn't like hammer hammer you over the head with it mm-hmm. in the moment people was looking at him as he's just trying to get rich off his daughters he okay. doesn't have their best interests at heart he's just he's being this asshole mm-hmm. because he doesn't know what he's got and he doesn't know how to manage it somebody needs to intervene somebody needs to intervene that's like the and this is going back and you know we'll wrap up uh, i'll wrap up real quick here and then we're going to touch on the kitchen scene as you wanted to. The the thing in the house when he comes home with the girls after having them out in the rain mm-hmm. practicing, and CPS and the cops are at his house. Yep. And the the rant that he goes on is amazing. Yes, because you feel it. Will I think Will Smith threw everything he had. Mm-hmm. That that's the that's the Uncle Phil. Why does it he love me? Moment uh, yep. from Fresh Prince. I, you've seen that passion. You've seen that connection. Because mm-hmm. any father can put themselves in that. Look, this is what I'm doing for my kids to get them out of here. You know, they're not going to be on drugs. They're not going to be on the street. This is the world we're living in. You know, I've got two predominant athletes here. I've got, you know, his oldest daughter had just was valedictorian of high school getting ready to go to med school or some or a lawyer and you know and he's you know it's hard enough i've got a 14 year old it's it's insane trying to raise a 14 year old you've got two children you know it's like herding cats most days it doesn't work out for us uh it's just so much pressure and then like you said being a black father in that climate because that was when the rodney and they touch on when the rodney king stuff was going on so you had racial tensions in la Mm -hmm. being a black man in that environment with the undertones and all the not only the glass ceiling of you know tennis in general of it being a predominantly white sport yeah and getting through that so you had that level of pressure on it to see him come out the other side the way he does you can do nothing but applaud him as a father that got his children to greatness. Um, all right. So I want to just touch on some craft elements where we, we need to move on to the guilty, but I do want to touch on a couple of different things. I cannot speak to the veracity of truth in this movie. I don't know enough about the man or, or these people. Um, I've heard this is a very sanitized version of this man's life uh, and what yeah. he did with these daughters. I've heard that Venus and Serena very much shaped the narrative as sort of a love letter to their dad. Um, this is not a warts and all story is the quote that I got from the critically acclaimed guy. So I can't speak to it on that level. They did check out their review if you want to hear a little bit more of what they got into. Just from purely a, uh, a storytelling perspective, completely absent of the fact that these are dealing with real people, just watching the narrative play out. I, I think Will Smith is fantastic. I think his... Uh, as we said before, the woman who plays his wife, Anjanu Ellis, um, and him, and, and I, we'll talk about the kitchen scene. 
they have a great dynamic and the you know so much of this is about tennis and, and about him shaping their careers but there's a portion of this movie dedicated to the partnership of marriage and what that means and what happens when you don't communicate anymore and how that affects the people and it and, and it takes place over about three scenes um yeah the first, the first time it happens to my recollection um and i might have this out of order but there's a bit where um where the coach comes to see them and they're talking in the backyard and he's like i something about if i remember correctly i want her to, oh i she's got to continue to play in the juniors i want her to do more tournaments and he's like yeah we're not going to do that anymore and and that's the first that that's the first time where he's questioned about his logic and in, in in leadership of their careers and his point in that scene is that I've watched what this is doing to the other children. They, if these are sane, well-adjusted p- adults that came from <laughs> sane, well-adjusted children, they will handle the burden of high-intensity professional sports just fine. That's his point. And it's very well made in the film. Um, he often doesn't say it very eloquently. I can extrapolate it from his dial- you know, dialogue and dialect, as it were. Um, and I think it's actually very well done, very, very truthful. But the wife in that scene, because he doesn't consult her about it, he's just like, he just like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And he dry, and the coach just kind of throws his hands up and walks out. And she's like, you know, <laughs> I'm here to support you, and I'm I'm here to be the supportive wife. It is it is our culture, it is our religion, it is part of being a good husband and wife combination. But next time, communicate with me what's happening. <laughs> like you're you're making big life changing decisions here for these people. Maybe clue me in. I know, let's have a conversation before you just go off and do it. The next time it happens, um, so uh, Venus wins a big juniors tournament. And again, I might have this out of order. But um, the, the second incident that, that I can recall is the bit where she wins the big tournament. And they're all talking in the van and yeah. bragging. And he's, you know, <clears throat> he is trying to teach them the lesson of humility. In all things, grace, dignity, and humility. Because again, if you start to believe in your own hype, you're going to make bad decisions. And isn't that what right. this is all about? Raising your children to make good decisions because you're not always going to be around to do it. Parenting is about guiding and instilling a firm base. You can't do it for them their entire lives. Um, that's called helicopter parenting, and that has ruined an entire generation of children. So... Um, and so they're all bragging. He tells them to stop. They keep going. The mother doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. And boy, did this remind me of me and my wife, where like I'll, <laughs> my son likes to sleep on the floor, even though he has a perfectly new, you know, good bed. And I actually got him a new bed, more to his liking. And yet he still will sleep on the floor at times. And I and I drives me insane. And she's like, Yeah, I don't know what you're making a big deal out of. Very. <laughs> so like I sympathized with with Will Smith here. Um, but he's making a huge deal about this. And she's like, they're fine. They're happy. And she touches on something, an element of his character, which I thought was interesting. She was like, you never want anyone to be happy. You're a miserable human being. And all you want is for everyone else around you to be miserable. And he's like, no, I have a, <laughs> damn it. I have a, I have an objective here. I have a goal. I have a way to, I want these children to be because it'll benefit them in the future. And this isn't it. And it's like, it's, you can see his point of view. 
you can see her point of view. And that is the brilliance of drama. When two points of views are presented and it's you, the audience, that have to decide, you know, who you're going to side with, you know, who, who you feel is the more valid. It's a great scene. In any case, he um, <laughs> he kicks him out of the car, tells him to go buy him a soda at the bodega. And then and he leaves. Drive away. <laughs> then they go home and... <laughs> And you and the comment is, well, how are they going to get home? He said, it's just a three-mile walk. Maybe they'll learn some. Yeah, it was great. Um, and she was, you know, of course, she they had stopped the car close enough to where he is not allowed <laughs> to make his point. They followed up with a scene where he makes him watch Cinderella. And what they are supposed to learn from Cinderella <laughs> is the is humility, which goes over everyone's freaking head. And this is yet another fight between him and the wife. The third time this happens... And this is where, and, and again, Whitney Seibold and um, William Bibiani brought this up on Critically Acclaimed. Um, and it's probably my, and knowing that it's probably my only quibble about the film, but even not knowing that, I felt like something was missing. And, I kind of, and, and when they clued me into what was missing, I'm like, yes, that's it. So it's very much the Richard, Venus, and Serena show with sometimes, um, with sometimes Oracine or Brandy his wife yeah and there's an entire life that richard led before her and after her that you don't see it's alluded to in this scene where they're fighting um and they're fighting over venus wants to compete um she wants to get out there she wants to turn pro and she's i guess 14 at the time um and he doesn't think she's ready and he doesn't want to push her too soon lest she break like an egg later on and um, and this is a big moment of like consternation with the, with the coach, with the whole family. It, it's a big to do. And he's like, I've been right so far. <laughs> like I, you know, we've gotten this far and I, and I, and I, and people have gone with me. I don't know why things are changing now all of a sudden, which I thought was a valid point to make. And she says to him something like, you're not perfect, you know, and so there was something along the lines of what about your son that showed up here one day? And you, you sent him yeah. back from like another family that he had. And I and and the point was made, like, why didn't they show that in the movie? And that's what I over overall, it's like my my my, my only major quibble with this whole thing is that anytime Richard starts to look anything less than sympathetic, the movie runs away from it. Like if the worst things you pick up about him in this is that he's a bit controlling and he makes him practice in the ring and he doesn't take the money, you know, the first time out, those are not really that bad things. Those are the things you do to overcome adversity. Um, running away from your family is a big deal. <laughs> you know, having multiple children with, I think he had like 10 kids in total, but having multiple children with other women and not, you know, dealing with them. I think they, they, they talked about him starting businesses and those businesses failing or him walking away from them. Like these were things we needed to see to tell this story to your point. Also. Yeah. A little bit <coughs> focus on Venus, not enough on Serena. You get a little bit of it when, when, when Venus gets picked up by the coach, the private coach, and then he can't take Serena with him because he can't take on two free students. And then the mom starts working with Serena. And then there's a couple of scenes of Serena kind of like low-key playing tournaments and stuff. Um, like that's all fine and everything. But the narrative of the movie in the second half of it gets a little muddled. Because, uh, you know, it, whose story is this? Is it Venus's story? Is it Richard's story? He's in the title, but whose story? Yeah. Is 
certainly not Serena's story. So I I feel like another path through the edit through, through script writing, and maybe we get a more focused narrative. And that's really the only negative I have to say about this is that it's a little too much of a love letter. There isn't an, there's not enough grit in what was apparently a real life gritty situation. And then it's a little unfocused in the second half. There's I'm trying to find this. There was a podcast I listened. Um oh yeah, here it is. It's uh if you're listening to this, go go if you want to see how sanitized this is, it is uh Andrew Jinx What Really Happened. Mm-hmm. It's the episode from September nineteenth, uh twenty eighteen, and it's about uh Serena throwing a match and he goes in and talks about how um horrible of a person richard was Mm -hmm. in the sense that he pushed these girls way too hard like you said this is a sanitized story like a love letter from venus and serena to their dad Mm -hmm. but yeah he was a tyrant uh from everybody that said this and going back to this he was a tyrant because you know what, I, I struggle with that because if they're if the if they're if they produce this and they decided this was the story they wanted to tell for whatever the reasons they wanted to tell it, how much of a tyrant could he have possibly been? And there's and theirs is the perspective that counts. Well, ask you ask this, you know, how many people you know there's a lot of people out there that have shitty parents that hold them mm-hmm. to a higher esteem than they should be. That's a very good point. You know, you, you, people, you, you, a lot of things you have are, because mm-hmm. without, without him being a tyrant, and this is coming strictly from a sports narrative, mm-hmm. I've seen it. I've, I didn't live it. I've seen it happen mm-hmm. with a lot of my friends. They are pushed so hard because they're doing private practices, they're doing yeah. drills, they're, they're putting their sports above. One, their mental health, mental health, two, their schoolwork mm-hmm. and everything. Because, and I've had, I've heard parents when I coached one time actually tell their kid, look, you're going to go do this. And they say, I have homework. And they were legitimately told, I don't care what homework you have. As long as you maintain a 2.0, you play sports. Everyone's looking and, for that and, NFL and, contract. And people, people live vicariously through their kids. Trust me, it happens with men all the time. Sure. Um, men love to live vicariously through their sons in sports. Happens all the time. That's why I ended up with a, a daughter. I can't do nothing with her. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because they think that their their sons, their son or daughters in this mm-hmm. case, will be their ticket out of everything. Will be sure. their golden ticket. Um, and it doesn't happen. Uh, it's very rarely happens. So. Yeah, he's not. He was a tyrant, but the payoff of it was the success the sisters had. Yeah. So, and they look back at that's it. That's the validation okay, of it, you know. If their and I think that validates what, his methods. But I, I think your point is well taken. That they may think that dad did everything he could to save us from, right. you know, from a terrible life, and look what successes we became. So we are appreciative of our father, objectively. Yeah, maybe I wasn't there. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. And you're certainly talking about yeah. a situation where somebody somebody bullet pointed what he did do. 
I, I can't judge it because I haven't listened to it, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. Let's um, overall, I'm going to say this final point and then we're going to move on because we're almost at an hour now. Um, it's not worth watching in the theater. Uh, it was in the no. theater, it was on HBO Max. I watched this at home. This is not what I, I'm, I'm going to kind of miss when HBO, uh, when Warner Brothers doesn't do the day and date on HBO Max because as much as I've kind of hated it for what it's done to the theater industry. In cases like this, where I've had access to these movies um, day and date that I didn't have to go to the theater for, I've been kind of like appreciative of it. Like this one, I think there's been a few others this year where I was like, I don't need to go see this in the theater. Um, and I watched it at home and we talked about it and it's been kind of nice. Um, I say that though, but at this point with the 45 day windows going, you know, and then a lot of things going to PVOD either at 45 days or, or day and date or within that time. It's such a weird world we're living in now. I, I don't know if any of that really matters. All right, let's move on to the next film. Uh, this is The Guilty. And this one had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 11th. This is a remake of a uh, 2018 Danish film of the same name. It's a crime thriller directed by Antoine Fuqua. And it stars Jake uh, Gyllenhaal. And... I'll just read through this. Troubled LAPD <laughs> officer Joe Baylor is working the night shift in a 911 call center while he awaits a court hearing for an incident that occurred on duty eight months prior. He answers a call from a woman named Emily Lighton who reveals she has been abducted. Joe learns that she and her abductor are traveling in a white van, but Emily is forced to hang up before she can provide more details. Joe relays the information to the California Highway Patrol, but they are unable to locate the van without a license plate number. Uh, Joe calls Emily's home phone and speaks with her six-year-old daughter, Abby, who tells Joe that her mom left the house with her dad, Henry Fisher. After getting Henry's cell phone number from Abby, Joe is able to retrieve the van's plate number, which he relays to the CHP. He also sends a patrol car to check on Abby and her baby brother, Oliver. Joe learns Henry has a record of assault. He calls Henry and demands to know where he is taking Emily, but Henry hangs up. Joe then calls his former partner, Rick, who is off duty, and asks him to visit Henry's house. Rick expresses concern about Joe's hearing, at which he is set to provide testimony. Joe receives a panic call from Abby. When two officers arrive at her home, he instructs her to let them in. The officers notice blood on Abby, on Abby and upon searching the property, find Oliver in the bedroom, either gravely injured or dead. I uh, got the impression he was dead. Um, Joe then calls yeah. Emily back and convinces her to pull the handbrake of the van, which she does. But it fails to crash the vehicle. Henry puts Emily into the back of the van. She tearfully tells Joe that she believed Oliver had snakes in his stomach and that she took them out. Yikes. Um, I didn't mean to purr there. I meant to go. Ah, ah, ah. When, yeah, exactly. You're just making it worse. <laughs> when Henry stops the van and tries to remove Emily from the back, she hits him with a brick and flees. But the tide has turned, you see. Things are not what they seem. Meanwhile... Rick breaks into Henry's apartment and finds documents from a psychiatric treatment facility in San Bernardino, where, Hem where Emily had been a patient. Dun, dun, dun. Joe calls Henry again, who explains he was taking Emily back to the facility. She had been off her medication for a number of weeks because they could not afford them, and during a psychotic episode, unintentionally hurt Oliver. Henry says he did not report the incident to the police because he does not trust the criminal justice system, and really, why would you? <laughs> As Emily calls Joe back from a freeway overpass 
implying that she is preparing to die by suicide. Joe directs the CHP to her location. While attempting to talk her down, he tries to distract her by revealing that he killed a 19-year-old while on duty because he was angry with him for hurting someone and because, quote, he because killed. I could. Joe tells Emily that Abby needs her and that he promised Abby she would come home. As officers arrive, Emily says she is going to go be with Oliver, and the lion goes dead. Joe thinks she has jumped, but later he gets a message from the CHP saying that they got her to come down safely. He also learns that Oliver is alive. He's alive. And Yay. he's in the hospital. Yay. In the restroom, a distraught Joe calls Rick and asks him to recant his previous statement about the incident. He asks Rick to tell the truth at the hearing, even if it means he will spend years in prison. Joe then calls the LA Times to inform a reporter that he will plead guilty to a charge of manslaughter. And that, my friends, that plot synopsis is brought to you by Grammarly. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. Do download Grammarly today. Go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. Okay. So this is a really you, – you described this as intense, Jason. Um, it, it is. I think um, – I don't know anything about the Danish movie. I just learned that it was a remake of that right before this podcast. I will tell you it comes across like a stage play, like a, like a one-man stage play. And it's very much a performance piece. It is one location. He's in the, the, the 911 call center. Um, it, he's – at one desk and later on he's at a different desk the whole thing that the, on screen there are three characters jake gyllenhaal is one of them the rest of it is voices and those voices are uh riley co pete sarsgaard eilie gory ethan hawk divine joey randolph who's awesome in this by the way yeah. christiana montoya david castaneda uh, Bo Knapp, Edie Peter Patterson, Paul Dano, who's also awesome, Jillian Zinzer, Bill Burr, uh, Dylan Lane, Eileen Burdock, and Marlene Forte. Anyway, um, what I have to say about this movie is the following, and I'll hand it over to you, Jason. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is excellent in this, and there's a, a couple of other people who I thought would be really interesting in this role, but I think... You know, look, if he's not working, the whole darn thing just crumbles to pieces. It right. is him talking on a phone for two hours. <laughs> and this movie resonated with me in the following way. If you've ever, like, been in a situation uh, where there's any kind of sense of urgency and you're waiting for someone to call you back, or you're on the line with them and you need them to communicate with you and there's silence. It is the most nerve-wracking thing. All of the dramatic tension in this is done through or projected through the idea of him either trying to communicate with somebody. And here's the thing. When you're on the phone with someone, you are utterly powerless. If right now Jason decides right. to get up and pull his pants down and show everybody his genitalia, I can't stop him. I can kick him out of the call. But I can't physically remove him from the thing, you know. And you know, and if I want, if I say, "Hey, Jason, I would like you to juggle fire flame, you know, flamethrowers," I can't make him do it. I'm being silly and facetious, but my point is, like, he's in a situation where he needs things to happen. He needs the California Highway Patrol to do X. He needs 
He needs this woman to not jump off a bridge. He needs this child to give him information. And nobody's doing anything that he wants. And it's utterly frustrating. And he's already not in a good mental place. Apparently, as a cop, he killed a kid. And it's not, you're not given any details as to why he did this or what the kid did to deserve it or not deserve it, as the case may be. Just that it happened. And that up to this point, he was willing to cover up for it. He ha- there's a scene where he talks to presumably an, uh, an ex-wife, a separated wife and estranged wife. Um, he alludes to having a daughter. And as you might expect, there are hard, <laughs> there are hard feelings, negativity, and a lot of impatience with him and him just... It is, it's so funny. Sometimes, serendipitously, there's a theme in the movies that we talk about that I didn't count on. And so far, this is the second movie com- featuring somebody who is trying to assert control over a situation he has no control over. Um, And that is a lot of this movie. I would not recommend this for a lot of people. This is definitely a film. This is a film fans film. You know, if you're really into watching movies and studying them and you're, you know, like you really like drama and performance and you don't need to see a lot of things actually happening on screen. If you're somebody who can appreciate the one act, the one man play, I think fine. Absolutely watch this. It's certainly worth a watch. This is not a wide appeal movie in any sense. This is like the super nichest of movies I've seen in a very long time. It's excellently well done. It, it's um, it's shot practically in the dark because they're in this call center and it's dimly lit to say the least. And he spends at least half the movie in an even darker conference room. Yeah, and it, it's it's pretty incredible that they could pull this off. What did you think of the guilty Jason? Okay, so the theme of this is shit Jason knows because what other people you know that have followed my appearances here knows that i'm a former emt that works gonna go with sex i was gonna go with a phone sex worker oh well that too Um, okay you know just like on rocco's modern life um (laughs) but yeah i'm a former emt um Mm -hmm. so i had some issues a lot of issues with how things were handled sure one you're not going to be able to speak like that to anyone (laughs) before (laughs) you are pulled you gotta talk about highly reprimanded just as an example you gotta talk about the guy on the bike uh, the guy on the bike. Second half of the movie, a guy on the bike calls nine one one twice and says, "Please send help! I've crashed my bike." And, he, and he's <laughs> meanwhile, he's like, "I have bigger fish to fry." And he's uh, basically like, "Don't call here anymore." <laughs> yeah, uh, is that the one that he calls and he and he gets the same guy twice? He yes. says, "Okay, yeah, I remember that." I, I for some reason I wasn't. I was. I was. Going back, that kind of—he doesn't take a lot like, of calls in this movie. Yeah, He's uh, I, I was the, I was more more like laughing about the guy that got mugged by the hooker, and he goes, "Well, how'd <laughs> you get in your car?" Um, and you know, and that's right. and, and then he goes and he says, "Well, what's the license plate?" He's like, well, "I don't know. It's a rental." He said, "Well, get out of your car, go to the back of it, tell me the license." Plate. You know, you can't be a dick, uh, especially yeah. working in a nine one one center. Um, because in EMS, you deal with people pretty much on the worst day of their life. So you right. have to be a consoling voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, you know, your profession, you can't go in there being a dick to people right. that you're trying to counsel. Sure. Uh, because that's what the other end of a, of a 911 call is, is basically 
a unlicensed counselor that's okay. trying to get you through a shit storm. You're also trying so, to get information so that you can <clears throat> do what the name entails, dispatch. Right. So that that was one of the biggest issues I have. Mm-hmm. The second was how, you know, just how he talks to people. Um, you're not going to be able to just randomly access information like that freely. Um, you know, there's a thing called uh, privacy laws mm-hmm. that unless a crime has been committed, you cannot access these databases. Um, there's a great line of dialogue where he's just like, he's, t- he's telling his partner, just kick open the door. And the guy goes, they're going to be a warrant. <laughs> for entry yeah. involved here and jay and, and jay gillenhall is trucking with no nonsense right now he's like i have no time to bleed or the pain or your or your laws and everyone else in the world is like but we're going to attend to them you're gonna need to get a hold of yourself yeah and did i mean if is it me or did you get this vibe too uh because this was and this part was kind of all over the place mm-hmm. that he wasn't really at the call center he was going through a psychotic break uh, dealing with something and the because in, in one part when he first gets the call you know he's like frantic and everything and he's being mm-hmm. a dick to everybody but then he talks to his sergeant and he talks he mentions the wife and the kid and it's like oh yeah i'll tell him and then when he talks to them you get you know when he's talking to the sergeant you get this idea of like he's got a great home life mm-hmm. everything's all kosher but when he talks to the wife you get that feel of this guy's not stable so can you really trust this narrative i got i didn't think that this was a psychotic break or all in his imagination or anything i believe the setting that it was set in however it if you're asking me if anything rubbed me the wrong way with this movie only that for dramatic purposes cops are never unless they're superheroes of some degree they're never they're always portrayed so poorly like i know plenty of cops both um that work in corrections and work on the street that have perfectly not wonderful home lives they treat their children well they treat their husband and children well they they are just normal not traumatized regular people not every single one of them is you know a fedora wearing you know trench coat wearing drunk you know, these not everyone's not everyone's Bullock from Batman 1989, drinking Drano. Um, you know, like some of these people are okay, but I feel like for dramatic purposes, it's always every cop is their their marriages and tatters. They're not good parents. Everything is everyone's McNulty. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, the only thing that I uh, left that we haven't covered is you yeah. know I was really. When I seen how this played out, I was I messaged you and I said, I, I'm really interested with how you how you want to take the twist because there, you know, there's something that happens that I think would intrigue you, which is the fact that you know he does have that breakdown, and mm-hmm. you kind of because it's alluded to the entire movie, and you're like, what the hell's going on? And then you find out that he's this cop that killed a 19 year old, and the whole because I can was a little ham-handed. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I once knew a. I once knew somebody who worked in correctionals who talked about the the solution to all of our problems in the, this particular institution was to dig a big hole. Yeah, and, but you know, I. But yeah. like, 
in the context, like now, if they would have gave it a little bit more context, it was like mm-hmm. he did something I didn't like, and because I can, and mm-hmm. it's like you, you kind of see the the what would this movie be if he is not in some way redeemed? What are we doing then for two hours? Well, I, no, I'm saying I'm saying the the issue I have with is if you would have had a little bit more context, like what mm-hmm. did the kid do to to yeah. to do that? But it's like. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's all in M. I think the narrative perspective of the movie is he shot he shot an innocent kid. That's all you need to know. And yeah, and but for some people that is that is all they need to know. They don't need context. And I get what you're saying. Context would be would have been wonderful, and you know, and it certainly would have made it up for discussion. But I think the perspective of the movie is if the kid is innocent, you don't shoot him. End of discussion. Well, I mean, but I mean, you also got to look at it through the narrative mm-hmm. of today's society. You know, mm-hmm. if he would have just said, I killed an innocent kid. Okay. But the line without the context was because I can. And it was delivered like so nonchalantly. You're, is that is this yet another boy to the police are always made to look poorly kind of a thing? And that's what you're getting at? Right. Now, now like if he would have said, you know, and he would have showed like, I killed an innocent kid. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I took it. I took. I misread the, the situation. An innocent life was lost. Here's where I'm with you. This was directed by Antoine Fuqua. Antoine Fuqua, not a great lover of uh, of institutions and you know the effect they have. Yeah, Fupa, the African American community. I'm sure from his directorial perspective, it's it's you know we are living in in a in a post. Uh, was it Floyd Patterson? Um, the, the gentleman that uh, couldn't breathe and, and the riots all last summer and all of that. Did I get his name right? Uh, I forgot his name. I've messed up his name. I apologize. It's not George Floyd. Name. George Floyd. Thank you. Um, I'm old. I forget stuff. Anyway, that's who I'm talking about. But, you know, we are living in a, in a post-George Floyd world. And, you know, we talked about it even with King Richard going all the way back into the 90s and Rodney King. And boy, is that got two sides to every story. But my point is, if you're Anton Fuqua... I think you're looking at the world we're living in and going, now is the time to tell stories about how cops abuse power. You don't need to get the details. You don't need to get the gory details. You don't need to understand where these people are coming from and why they make the decisions that they do. They just do, and we're awfully tired of it. Now, I'm not saying I agree with Antoine Fuqua. I'm, I am projecting, interpreting um, <laughs> what his point of view is and, and why it's coming out in the film. So I get it's not that I don't understand what you're saying, and I don't even necessarily disagree with it. It's more of the director is clearly trying to say with this movie, among other things, that cops do bad things. We shouldn't we we should we shouldn't let cops do bad things. Cops who bad who do bad things should be punished. And okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. disagree with that point of view, but he, he's not looking for new ones here. This isn't this isn't two sides of a debate. Cops do bad things and should be punished. That is all he is trying to say here, among other things. Yeah. So, and I mean, we don't really we've pretty much exhausted this one to to the extent that we're going to, and then we're going okay. to move on to the worst of the three. <laughs> well, before we um, do. Before we do, just so I can pay some bills here and make sure I do this, because I almost forgot to do the first plug, and boy, am I getting tired of that. Because um, I don't I don't set you up. That's what you was waiting for me to set you up. No, I, I hate it when everyone sets me up. I have this. <laughs> I'm in control. I'm King Richard. 
um i'm sure robert is watching on twitch and is about to and is about to comment in oh so great potentate um as they <laughs> call me um but yeah, anyway speaking of king richard and the, the williams sisters and we didn't talk about the music uh in king richard and there's no music in the guilty um but if you would like to hear some good music but you don't want to pay for it we are giving away a 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. If you click on the link in the description, getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Again, it's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. You can have access to a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Uh, when I had Elizabeth Faust on here to talk about those three musicals, she was talking about how uh, it'll do blends for you. It'll do make, make playlists. There's all kinds of things you can do with it. Harry Broadhurst has talked about how you can enable your uh, home devices to play podcasts like this one, where on there, or you could have it play uh, the music that you save on there. So there's all kinds of things you can do with Amazon Music to put music in your life and give you a soundtrack to walk to. So that link, once again, is getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Fill out the information. Click the link. Fill out the information. Agree to the 30 days. If you like it, you keep it. If you don't, after the 30 days are up, you can cancel. No fuss, no must, no contracts, no pains in the butt. All right. Lastly, Night Teeth, <laughs> which I have talked about this many times before, and it bears repeating. You know, Robert and I, when we did the triple feature on um, on the Oscar movies, Mank, Nomadland, and The Father, and, you know, part of that discussion was the bifurcation of the theater experience. That oh, in the last twenty years, your your choices are either boutique films or event pictures, and the movies that you know the low the, the low to mid tier budget, uh, Holly, you know, major release, wide release Hollywood flick seem to have died and it died for a variety of reasons um a lot of the you know the rise of streaming and then fast forward because of covid this is all well-worn territory we have said it a zillion times on various podcasts here but all of those movies that used to be in the theater that were you know mid-budget and then you would find them later at your local blockbuster or something like that and there was just tons and tons of these to whet your appetite with are now on streaming services like Netflix and Hulu, Amazon and whatnot. Night Teeth is from that kind of filmmaking. It is <laughs> it is just a movie. There's no, not a whole lot of room for interpretation here. We'll talk a little bit about the craft just, you know, just because there is craft elements to talk about. But I mean, this is blockbuster shelf average vampire action flick and nothing more there is no there is no greater meaning here there is no yeah there's no substance somebody wanted to make a vampire flick and they made a vampire flick lobster that is what's happening with night teeth so anyway it's a 2021 vampire thriller film thriller um yeah, I was this, thrilled. I was thrilled to see the credits. There, this this had no release in theaters. At least the other two had limited releases or whatever. Um, this was the production company is ones I've never heard of. Forty two and unique features, and this went straight to, to Netflix. This had a twenty one million dollar budget. It stars the following people: uh, Jorge Lindenborg, um, who is a Dominican actor of no discernible credits that I can find. Debbie Ryan, who's the only actress on here I knew going into it. Uh, I know her from the, Des the Disney Channel show Jesse, which my kids used to watch. And then Sean Comer and I reviewed the two seasons of her in um, Insatiable. I think she's great. I think she's very, very attractive actress. 
I'll watch just about anything she's in. I think she's fantastic. Lucy Fry plays uh, the daughter and godfather of Harlem who gets with the uh, with the jazz musician. She's pretty good in this. She has a, she has an interesting look, and she's been in a whole bunch of other stuff. But I know her from Godfather of Harlem, um, which is a great show, by the way. Raul Castillo, uh, Megan Fox in a in a limited role here, and then finally Alfie Allen. So here's what happens in this turkey. Benny, a freelance, <laughs> a freelance chauffeur driving in place of his brother Jay, is hired by friends Blair and Zoe to drive them to several popular Los Angeles nightclubs. Unbeknownst to him, the girls are both vampires. Dun dun dun. The movie reveals that vampires have coexisted peacefully with humans for centuries, leading only by feeding only by consent. Stupidest thing. Victor, a wealthy vampire lord who has grown bored and discontented with his life, is planning to subvert the system by kidnapping Jay's girlfriend, breaking the truce with Boyle Heights. Unbeknownst to Benny, Jay is secretly part of the human council charged with maintaining peace between vampires and humans. As Jay and his allies begin hunting down all of the vampires in LA, Victor executes a plan to wipe out his fellow lords and seize power for himself while tasking Blair and Zoe with creating as much chaos in the city as they can to distract the vampire hunters and peacekeepers. When Benny drops the girls off at a hotel, he discovers that the hotel is actually a feeding ground for vampires. Ah! And realizes <laughs> what... <laughs> no! And realizes what Blair and Zoe are using him for. Fresh meat. The girls threaten his life, but spare him so they can get to Jay. During a visit to one of their targets, the girls are trapped by vampire hunters, but Benny decides to help them escape and lets them hide at his home. Benny then learns that Victor has his brother who lost to the vampires in hand-to-hand -hand combat while trying to slay him, like you do. Benny drops the girls off at the last location of their list and discovers that the home belongs to Victor. Blair urges him to leave, but Benny refuses to abandon his brother. Inside the house, Benny finds several human prisoners being kept by the Lord as blood bags for him to feed on, including Jay. But is captured by Victor while trying to free him. Victor and Zoe then threaten to uh, kill him, leading Blair to turn against Victor and Zoe after realizing she has feelings for Benny that come completely out of nowhere. Yeah. In the struggle that follows, Zoe stabs Blair, and in retaliation, Benny remotely activates his brother's car, smashing a window, and and the car stops mid-collision, by the way, so as not to run Benny over, but more on that in a moment. Yeah. And exposing sunlight, which kills Zoe. Victor then attacks Benny using Jay as bait and manages to bite Benny before Jay tackles him into the sunlight, killing him. Benny soon transforms into a vampire, and the brothers go their separate ways after Jay decides to start training as a professional vampire hunter and tells Benny that he expects him to fight by his side when the city plunges into chaos. Later that night, Benny meets Blair for an evening out. Okay. Um, I got bored with this one real quick. Yeah, well, I'm just going to tell you, somebody wanted to make Blade uh, <laughs> and and didn't because this is pretty much the Deacon Frost um, storyline from the first Blade. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they said, well, what else could we do? Uh, let's use the Jamie Foxx, Tom Cruise collateral movie as a template, too, mm. where you just drive, have him drive around committing multiple hits, uh, which was a really great premise. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to shit real quick <laughs> because, I mean, from uh, the first part, you know, the pickup, you know, picking up two hot females to drive around to parties. Mm-hmm. 
it, you know, is thing, and then you find out what's going on. And so you're like, okay, this is this is interesting. And then all of a sudden they introduce the whole blade aspect of like vampire hunters and stuff. So you're like, okay, where's this going going? Okay. And then they go to the the surfer dude king's house. Oh my god, and, that was interminable. And magically in a three hour span that she decides that she like is madly in love with him and they start dry humping mm-hmm. out by the pool. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, this took a leap in a direction. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's at the end. It's like, they're madly in love and she's <laughs> throwing herself against her master to save the one she loves. And you're like, what the fuck is, where's this bullshit come from? Right. This, this movie had very little substance. This was one of those movies that, like you said, that you find at a, you know, that was just, you'd find at a local blockbuster or video store that just got churned out in the, the late eighties, early nineties. Right. That where you just wanted, it's kind of like the Radley Broadcast Network where you just want content out there. It doesn't matter what like, it is; it's content. I like to think that the quality of what we're putting out is a little more than what okay. you're, you're alluding to. Okay, some of the movies we we've covered is uh, Santa Shark. Okay, it was Santa Jaws. San, okay, Santa Jaws. Uh, and that Velocipaster. was a long time you and I had. Velocipaster. That was your that was your decision, not mine. I'm just saying, you know, we sometimes, you know, me, and you have some just <laughs> to get content out. Just to blow off a little stream and have have okay. some fun. Um, we won't even discuss Nerdland. Um, I still haven't forgiven you. Uh, but but I'm just saying. Um, and this is like you know, in mind of your genre and age group, and mm-hmm. this is USA Up All Night uh, yeah, type type movie that you're going to see on USA with Captain. What was his name? Captain USA or something? I don't know, Captain Stabin. At, I guess, and the big titty girl, <laughs> the big titty blonde that was on there with him, mm-hmm. um, and and it was just fun. It, mm-hmm. Those movies were fun. This movie was not. This okay. movie, this movie was just something you throw on in the background. This is one of those ones I said when I'm usually watching a movie, I'm playing on my phone. I played on my phone when watch this movie, but after I could just look up, get the premise, five ten minutes pass, just kind of glance, get the premise, you know. I, I played more Pokemon Go than I did watch this movie. In defense of the performances in this movie, I think Lucy Fry and Debbie Ryan do an admirable job of trying. This is obviously a vehicle they took, one, just to have work, but... Um, it's I payday. Think, well, I, they're, they're, they're both mostly known for television roles, and, you know, the goal of most actors is to try to ascend into the, into the talkies and, you know, into the features. And... So sometimes you you take a movie hoping, even if the movie is terrible, at least you'll stand out and someone will, you know, a casting director will find you and they'll put you in, you know, in the big feature. So I think Lucy Fry and Debbie Ryan largely succeeded there. Um, They're given nothing to work with. And some of the stuff (laughs) Lucy Fry is given, she's like almost overacting. Um, But, you know, but I, but I think that's largely a matter of direction. Um, I think the tendency to blame the actor for some of these performances. I'm like, no, there's, there's a director there that thought that was a good take. You, know? <laughs> I, you have to put some of that back on the director. So uh, I think Debbie Ryan and Lucy Fry are okay. And this, the lead in this is bland. I, you know, He's trying to do earnest as best he can. I, 
he was sort of a nothing character to me and certainly not somebody I wanted to see win the girl in the end. I don't really, I did, I didn't really care about him. I was much more interested in what Lucy Fry and Debbie Ryan were doing. The plot's a bit convoluted. It's, it's way up its own ass uh, to the point where it lost me and I, it, it not, it lost me and I didn't have any urgency to find my way back into the film again. I just kind of just passively watched it until <laughs> it was over because I was like, I just want this to be done. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta yeah. treat it and decorate. I, I, I just want this to be over. Yeah. Um, this so for those people who are longtime fans of this show and have listened to a lot of our podcasts, you might have heard, remembered that Robert Winfrey, Jesse, and I had a three hour group therapy session that we masqueraded as a t- television review of uh Refin's Too Old to Die Young. And we talked about how, like, the aesthetic of Los Angeles at night where it's just drenched in neon. This movie goes for that, and it, I mean, like, how do you mess that up? It's fine. You know, it's you watch this movie. Well, the problem is, like, everyone has done the drenched in neon Los Angeles at night thing. Like, this was very. So there are people who and I I do appreciate them. I don't mean to bag on on these certain people. There are certain people that they're not film people. They like to watch movies. Movies are a passive entertainment vehicle for them you know it is something to do to pass the time and if they're at least mildly entertained then the movie's a success there's no element of craft appreciation it's literally did this capture my attention for the length of of, and breadth of this film and this feels like it was made by somebody like that like somebody who's like i like movies you know somebody who just wants to see a superhero punch his way through the bad guys for two hours with no break, you know, was like, I'm going to make, you know, that guy, that, that guy in our culture who likes the punchiest of punchy comic books and TV and movies decided to make a vampire film and took the stuff he, he, he saw in other movies, better movies and was like, I'm going to do all those things in my movie and it's going to be a great success because all of those things were successful and it's kind of like making a paella out of ingredients that a what a paella what the fuck is that all right let's try a uncultured swine um it's a spanish dish with like rice and shellfish and vegetables and whatnot well beans and disease are you too all right, the um, it's just like somebody like took a salad and you know it's like well all of I've heard of all these ingredients being in salad and and you and you somehow and, and they do go together and yet you still somehow messed it up like how do you, how do you mess up neon drenched Los Angeles at night vampire movie like it's yeah. the easiest thing to make and yet somehow somehow they made that <laughs> premise boring as shit yeah um go ahead. I'm just saying, um, would yeah, just real quick because I don't really have much to say about this. No, I'm just about um, the. If do you think this would have worked um, if they didn't try the LA aspect and like maybe set it in like a Chicago or yeah. even Vegas? I I, how about Miami? New Orleans? Yeah, I, I'm, I New Orleans. I I think is New a Orleans great... would have worked. I think that would have been because you have you could you could have did the whole you know voodoo esque. Uh, background. Yeah. I think this would have worked really good as a a um, location of Vegas because you have 
because you have these extravagant parties going on all the time, right? You have you have a city that really doesn't sleep. You know, mm. there's no clocks, and you never know what time it is in Vegas. Um, so I think this would have really worked there. And you have that strip, and instead of being driven, they could have been like maybe, um, like. They would have started out driving like, or well, going to these parties and then have to be driven. And he was basically hired as like a handler type mm-hmm. deal uh, to make sure that they get there uh, from these various club parties in on the Strip of Vegas. And then have the last location, his house being out in the Vegas Hills. Um, I, I just don't think, I just think the L.A. aspect of this was took away from it more than it gave anything to it mm-hmm. yeah um i think a better location would have served this movie better um again i, I the, the problem is if you're just looking for kind of passive entertainment um it's okay but if you want anything more out of your your movie watching experience you're not going to find it here it's kind of the perfect movie for netflix though so <laughs> Um, I'm too old and I got married too, too soon before the whole Netflix and chill thing started to become Mm -hmm. a popular vernacular and and activity. This is a, if if you're looking for a Netflix and chill movie, you, you'll, you'll be okay with night teeth. This is not a movie you have to pay a tremendous amount of attention to. No, uh, it it is not. But yeah, I mean, I don't really, like I said, I don't have much else to say on this. I, I think this was. Kind of, we we typically have like two really solid movies, and we get to get that. And we kind of get that third movie. We kind of <laughs> get that third movie that's kind of like out there that we're not satisfied with. So yeah, um, that's all I have to say about this movie. It wasn't good. It's just background fodder. If you need something on that you really don't need to be paying attention to, and you really don't want to pay attention to, you just need some aesthetics in the background. This is the movie for you. The last thing I'm going to say about this, just really quickly. I don't think Lucy Fry, as a, as good of an actress as she is, I don't think she has the right kind of screen presence at this time, or acting chops for that matter, for the big screen. Debbie Ryan is not a big screen star either, but I think if you if you if Debbie Ryan is sort of a um, a supporting actress player in a big feature, if she has some other stuff to lean on, and there's enough going on around her. I think she'll be okay. Like Debbie Ryan, I think has a lot of screen presence and I would like to see her in a feature um, that actually makes it to the theater. Uh, I don't think Lucy Fry is there yet. And I'm sort of looking at the poster. Like I said, Debbie Ryan was the one that stood out to me as the lead in this thing, but who's front front and center on the poster, Lucy Fry, who of the two characters who gets the most attention in the movie up until the very end until things turn Lucy Fry. And I was like, nah, I don't nice try. I mean, I, I think every actress needs their a- actor, you know, needs an at bat to see if they can ascend into into features. But I uh, I don't think this one worked out for her. I, I think Debbie Ryan comes away from this more unscathed than she does. So that's it. This is really only my only thought about Night Teeth is someone give Debbie Ryan a decent part in a in a feature and Lucy Fry. Let's we'll see you in the in the third season of Godfather in Harlem. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I was going to say that's uh, somebody else mentioned that too, and I know that you have talked about it before, and, and wondering if that's actually a a good 
a good show to check out as a oh, quick Godfather reference. Great. And she's great in it. Like that's why that's when I saw her in this. I was like, oh honey, <laughs> this was not a good, not a good look for you. Um, all right. That's it. That is the end of our triple feature for this evening. I had a great time talking with you, Jason. I um, a lot of fun. Yeah. Glad you recommended uh doing King Richard. And yet we have yet another movie for when the Oscars are announced to tweet ad nauseum on Twitter. Um, tomorrow, here's what we got going down. Um, myself and Christian are reviewing NXT War Games, which I have to watch when I'm done with this. Uh, and then I am going to conduct a group therapy session between David Wright, Robert Winfrey, and Alexis Aina as they lament the poor adaptation of the anime Cowboy Bebop to live action on Netflix. I I don't even think I'm going to get a word in edgewise. I, I think I'm just going to be sitting there directing traffic. However... I will have a lot to say about Doom Patrol Season 3 as my buddy and I, Jesse Starcher, uh, talk about how great that show is. The Sisterhood of Dada. Fantastic. Um, myself and Pat Mullen will be doing the Four Kings of Boxing podcast, Chapter 6, Thursday night, um, after I'm done watching Spencer, which is currently on PVOD. More on that later. Uh, we're talking Leonard versus Hearns 1, Showdown at the Palace. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's um, Nightmare Alley comes out a week from Friday, so we are re-airing a week to a week to um, to the day of that release. Crimson Peak. I actually was not on that review. That's Robert Winfrey. And did, were you on that one, Jason? Yes, me and Robert did a Crimson Peak. Oh, fantastic! So there you go. Well, we're re-airing that review from whatever the hell year that was. Twenty fifteen uh, on uh, December tenth. So. You can check that out. Uh, and then Spider-Man Week kicks off in earnest. We'll have Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, Spider-Man Villains. We'll have our review of the, our our very first reboot of the Damn You Hollywood Movie Review Series when we were just the Summer Movie Review Club. The very first, so the whole, the first year was just me and Jeff, and we did about a dozen of those, and then we stopped, and I didn't do movie reviews for a while, and then... Pat and I got into an argument. <laughs> I, I shock of all shocks about the amazing Spider-Man 2. And I said, screw this. I'm not doing this with you anymore. Free. And he is going to moderate a debate between the two of us. And, and Pat Mullen and I had a raucous caucus. We debated the merits of the amazing Spider-Man 2 starring Andrew Garfield. Robert Winfrey moderated. And then Robert Winfrey was trapped in a podcast with me for the next 10 years. So you're what you're saying is on trial started way really started way back when. Yes, on trial on, on trial started started as damn you Hollywood. Um, so yes, uh, fun 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 times. So that is the basically the very first damn you Hollywood we ever did of the Robert Winfrey and Mark Radulich era, and Pat Mullen was there too. That'll be re-aired on December twelfth uh, in the evening. Myself, Ben Cologne, and Sean Comer are going to do a, a long road to ruin for all of the Spider-Man movies, all three Tobey Maguire, both Andrew Garfield and the Tom Holland movies. Uh, and that's leading Good luck. of no way out. Yeah. We're not going to go through every movie one by one. That's a nine hour podcast. Um, we're going to tackle a couple <laughs> of thematic elements and see which one wore best between the three different Spider-Man. So, and God help me. I'm going to try to keep that to at least 90 minutes. Yeah, um, good luck. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then I have to keep it to 90 minutes because at 1130, 
because F my life, Harry Broadhurst and I are doing a TV party for Ring of Honor Final Battle. Rest in peace, Ring of Honor. You were you were loved. And Beyond Wrestling's Fet Fight Foot Fight Forever, wherever the hell they're calling it. Um, and then a week from tonight, and I'll stop here, myself and Alexis Haina will be doing a DMU Hollywood for West Side Story from Steven Spielberg, a movie, a musical, my mother-in-law condemns and swears West Side Story was perfect the first time it was done in the yeah. it should never be It should never have been redone. And I said, if you're Steven Spielberg and you walk into Universal's office and you say, I'm doing West Side Story, they hand you a blank check. It's fine. Get over it. Uh, also, just real quick, there's a four-part Spider-Verse podcast that week, um, episodes 289 through 292. That's Jesse Starcher and Ben Cologne doing all 87 issues of the Spider-Verse series or however the hell that goes. So that's what's going on on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Jason Teasley, I hear you like to gamble on football. I, I gamble. I, I'm winning money as we speak. Um, yes, uh, you can find me um, coming back to the RIB um, after a small hiatus. I'll be returning in February. So Mark gets a little bit of time away from hearing my, my sultry tones on podcasts with him. But Boy, is February going to be fun. Um, Black um, that's not with true. You, uh, we got, you'll, you'll be on sooner than that. We have you season three, January 2nd. Oh, okay. Well, you haven't put it on the schedule yet, so that's why I didn't see it. It is there. <laughs> it is not on my schedule because I've, I've merged yours over and it is not there. It's there um, now. I okay, well, well, you uh, season three, which will be fun. Uh, but boy, is February going to be fun? We've got a lot of lot of lovely movies for Black History Month. Yes, some some <laughs> may get us condemned. <laughs> yeah, that, that that February is definitely going to be Jason and Mark celebrate Black History in our own imitable fashion, and I am excited beyond belief for that. Well, it's like we we cover. There's no gray area. We're either black exploitation <laughs> or we're you know uh, high art gray, black cinema. Yeah. Yeah, the the art black cinema. There's no in between. We we <laughs> said no. We will yeah. not. We will not have a gray area. It's either it's either caviar or candy. There's no in between. It's either caviar or spam. There's no there's no hamburger. Uh, but you could find me um, on the second of short podcast. Uh, we have TikTok. We have Facebook. We have Twitter. Uh, as you can see, there's my handle right there. Love my lovely face and ginger beard. Uh, you know, like, comment, subscribe on anything we drop. Just drop by, say hi. Um, the more content likes we get, the more you get to see my lovely face on TikToks and stuff, which is actually becoming quite fun that I'm doing those. Interesting enough. But outside of that, you know, I always love coming on, talking movies with you, Mark. It's probably one of my favorite things to do. So I really appreciate you having me on. On these triple features from time to time, I'm looking forward to um, I'm looking forward to the triple features we got in February. I'm looking forward to our Super Bowl uh, triple feature that we're doing. And you know, Jason, you know, I uh, Jason came to me earlier in the year and said, "Hey, I want to be on more stuff." So you'll be on lots of stuff in 2022. And I uh, I enjoy talking to you too, Jason. It's a lot of fun. It's nice to get on one of these and not have to scream at my person that I'm doing a podcast with. And you get through synopsis. 
That is also true. All right, folks, we've been making snarky comments now. Thank you for joining us here on Triple Feature. For Jason Teasley, I'm Mark Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and behave.